Hello and welcome to One Great 150. This is our 16-episode, 15-person podcast series discussing the first 150-ish years of Winnipeg's history. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by a friend and producer, Nick. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the magic show of things. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And today's the icky episode. I know. We've been excited about this one. Yeah. So if you don't like um, human waste, maybe give this one a miss. (laughs) (laughs) This is a real strong start. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about um, Margaret Scott, um, her nursing mission, and subjects like disease and sanitation in the early 1900s. Good, because her favorite topic is, of course, how Winnipeg was very, very gross. I do just love talking about how Winnipeg was very gross. I mean, we both worked uh, as tour guides talking about Winnipeg's downtown in various capacities. I feel like both of us were like, we're going to talk about the typhoid epidemic of 1904 and Uh how people pooped in rivers. Yeah. So that's that's basically a summary of today's episode. Okay, so we can just stop recording and go home. Yeah, so if that's um, all you wanted, then this is our see shortest episode of all time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Margaret Scott is from a kind of pretty typical like middle class Victorian family in Ontario. Her father's a judge. Mm-hmm. Um, but she ends up losing both of her parents by the time she's around twelve. Oh, um, yeah. So it's yeah, it's very sad. She was really close to both of them, and she ends up spending her teenage years being raised by her aunts. Okay. Um, and a defining moment in her early life is when she meets a girl who had also lost her parents, but who was being raised in an orphanage. Okay. So she was apparently like deeply affected by this, and I wonder if she didn't think, you know, this is another orphan, but we're in very different circumstances, you know. And I'm sure of... the orphanage was like pretty abysmal in like sanitation standards. Sure, yeah. So like, there, but for the grace of God's go, God go I. Yeah. Um. So in any case, in her early twenties, she marries a prominent Ontario lawyer who's also an MPP. Um, so she's kind of moving through life the way you would kind of expect her to, right? That seems like the natural trajectory for, like, kind of a, like, Canadian middle-class woman is 100%. you marry a guy who's, like, lightly involved in, like, law and politics. Yes. <laughs> in some capacity. Yeah, like, slightly kind of above average income, like, you're yeah. gonna be comfortable the rest of your life. And... At some point you move west somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so, um, unfortunately, though, they're only married for about three years. Oh, no. When her husband dies. Um, so the only thing I could find about this was, quote, he was seized with an illness of a lingering character from which he never recovered. Oh, I mean, that could so, be literally anything back then. This, Yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of cases in these, in like kind of 1900s-ish, they didn't know a lot of the time. I think people just kind of got sick and they right. were like, they seem sick. Something's not right. Yeah. So in any case, she's only 25 when she becomes a widow. God, that's so young. Yeah, and she doesn't have parents, right? The closest family she has is these aunts. So she finds herself in the somewhat unusual position for someone of her background of having to fend for herself financially. Right. Um, so she ends up becoming a clerk and she kind of rises through the ranks to supervise an office of around 50 women. She's still in Ontario at this point, but a couple years later, she has a health crisis of her own. Mm. So she goes through this period of like, pretty bad ill health and her doctor advises that she moves to the prairies ah that bracing prairie air. that's literally exactly what she's told <laughs> yes of course yeah it's funny no one says that anymore no one <laughs> says if you're sick you should move to the prairies <laughs> no i mean i feel like also right now if you're having like specifically lung issues don't move to the prairies no i do probably back then it was less polluted i mean also like the wildfires have increased too right so like yeah just air quality has gotten worse but 
I mean, it's similar when you look at like old like English health guides where it's like visit the country where you're away from the city. Yes. Um, Get I feel some like sea I'm, air. I'm kind of a delicate person. And I always figure if I lived back then, I would have been sent to the seaside all the time. I think you would have lived in like a sanitarium yeah. by the sea. <laughs> I would have lived in like an open air camp. Yeah. <laughs> you have to marry rich and then have someone kind of like send you away. Yeah. Like my sickly wife could not be present at the tea party today. I see my husband like twice a year when I'm well enough to come home. <laughs> or when he is like free enough to visit. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, yeah, it's unclear to me again, like, exactly what was wrong with her, but she wasn't well, so she moves to the prairies. Apparently it works. She gets better. Sure, why not? Um, so she moves to Winnipeg in 1886. So as we mentioned in the last episode, this is, I think, just one year after CP Rail arrives, or a couple of years. A couple of years. It kind of is slowly built over the course of, like, a couple years in the 1880s, because, like, in 1882, we see people start to come in, and then I think by 1885, it's reached like uh brandon regina area mm-hmm. so it's like spanning further west so perfect time for someone like margaret scott to yeah. take the train out yeah and cp rail has essentially just built this line that effectively divides winnipeg in two for the next like 140 years yes a much a very long time yeah a very long time after that they really kind of bisect the city yes. right down the middle and it still right it's still like that i mean winnipeg has a lot of rail lines to this day i've it's been a couple years since i Found this number. I think it's like 24 active rail lines in the city in like, I don't know, 2018 yeah. or something. Every so often when it's like coming up to an election year, someone's like, maybe we should not have those in the city. And everyone's like, nah. <laughs> Money. We'll deal with that never. We'll deal with that when we, when we have to. Yeah. So anyway, um, Margaret Scott arrives to a town that is quickly becoming a city. Yes. Yeah, that's so, like right on the sort of cusp of like the railroads bringing everyone in. Exactly. So Winnipeg had a population of about 7,500 people in 1881. By 1890, there will be about 40,000. It's a lot of people. It's a huge increase in people. I mean, I can't think of an equivalent leap in population no, I in mean, like the modern day. The thing about Winnipeg's growth is that it's so hard to imagine when you think of like Winnipeg as it is today and the way yeah. people like talk about it. Right. But the way it was, like, pitched and the way that people thought about it was so, like, lofty back then. Yeah. I mean, if you think, like, if the size of Winnipeg today were to quadruple over the course of 10 years. I mean, also, like, we could never keep up with that anymore, no, right? No, absolutely not. And so it, well, and it that's exactly the yeah. thing, right? It posed problems because they couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. There was some, like, stat that by the year 2000, Winnipeg would have reached a million people if it had kept going mm-hmm. on that trajectory. And then obviously it just didn't. Yeah. Um, so Scott is, like, just one of this huge wave of immigrants mm-hmm. who come in. Um, and, and I think notably, probably also, more of the first wave of, like, women coming through. Because we've talked in a yes. lot of the other episodes that there's just not a lot of women around, yeah. generally that's, speaking. That's a really good point as well. Yeah, so the, um, yeah, a lot more women coming in. And also, like, a lot of these kind of, like, first immigrants were from Ontario. But increasingly, um, over the next couple decades, come are coming from Central and Eastern Europe as right, well. Right, yes. So Margaret Scott is part of that kind of first Ontario wave, mm-hmm. but um, you know, hot on her tail are, are other so people. many yeah. other people. Um, so she ends up becoming a typist at the Dominion Land Office, which, as you can imagine, is pretty busy. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yep. Lots of land stuff going on. So many different uh, posters to make saying that it's not cold here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, fun little anecdote from her like early career is apparently she wants to learn shorthand. Okay. Um, and the local court stenographer refuses to teach her because she's a woman. Funny. I feel like this so, has happened. This is what happened with Cora Hind. Also, that she tries to become a reporter, and they're like, 
Nah. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently, like, Margaret Scott seems to have been overall, like, very just, like, mild-mannered, I think. Um, she apparently tells this story to William Forbes Alloway, who's oh, just, like, course. an acquaintance of hers, just because, like, she thinks it's funny. Yeah. And he um, ends up finding someone to teach her shorthand. Okay. Yeah, he, like, whatever, locates someone for her, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'll, like, teach you shorthand. Cool, good for him. Uh, Alloway, by the way, is the founder of the Winnipeg Foundation. Yeah, and so I think it's interesting that, like, already Margaret Scott, like, she's not really doing anything that significant in yeah, Winnipeg How'd she yet. meet him? I don't know. So I think, like... Because Alloway was on council. Like, he was a pretty active politician by that point. I think he must have been pretty rich by the 1880s already. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So I don't know if, like, maybe she came to Winnipeg with, like references or like recommendations well you would have to come with references for a job right yeah so i'm sure so i wonder if there wasn't something where like because she's from this kind of like middle upper class background if she sort of was able to kind of move immediately into these circles yeah um so she becomes a very good stenographer she takes really well to shorthand she's much in demand um and she does this for around 10 years and then while she's working at the office she meets this guy named e.h taylor okay and he at the time is doing charity work with an Anglican reverend uh, named Reverend Owen. Okay. So Taylor tells Margaret Scott, like, oh, I'm working with this reverend, and he's, like, having a really hard time keeping up with his correspondence. (laughs) (laughs) And Margaret Scott is like, great, I'm amazing at shorthand now. (laughs) Have I got the person for you? Yes. (laughs) It's me. So she starts working with him, helping him with his his, uh, correspondence. But Reverend Owen had also at the time been appointed to um, this committee to investigate conditions of the police station at King and James. Oh. I guess there's like a jail of sorts there. Oh, we have talked about this jail a little bit in one of our other episodes. Okay, which episode did we- The Gingerbread City Hall episode, because that was designed by Barber and Barber. Yeah. The like- vaguely competent law firm that built the gingerbread city hall the issue with the jail when they built is that you could actually pry the jail cells apart and just step right through (laughs) so apparently it was also really just like gross and bad a 1880s or 1890s jail gross and bad (laughs) what so reverend owen um he says he found it to be quote deplorable in the extreme the conditions um so scott actually starts going with reverend owen to like visit women prisoners and, like, befriends a bunch of them, helps them to find, like, homes and jobs when they're released. Interesting. Especially because it seems like she hasn't done anything like that before. No, hey. that's true. Like, I guess she's sort of been, like, a supervisor of other women. But, no, this is her first real foray into, like, charity work. And that seems like a pretty big step from, like, doing basically nothing Yeah. to, like, I'm going to help house people. Yeah. She And she really does just, like, step into it full force. All right. Um... And Margaret Scott says, this is one of the few instances we have of, like, her actual words. She says about him, Mr. Owen prayed me out of office work. He wanted me to work altogether among the poor, but I loved my own office work and wanted my liberty. And at first I was unwilling to give it up. However, when repeatedly the words came to me, this is the way, walk ye in it. I knew God was speaking to me and I gave up office work to help Mr. Owen among the unfortunates of the city. I didn't lose my freedom. There was infinitely more. The office was all for self, one's food, clothes, home, and just a little margin left for God. There are wide free spaces when one stops thinking only of food and raiment. Hmm. So she credits um, Reverend Owen with 
sort of changing her way of thinking about the kind of life she wanted to have, I guess. Interesting. Yeah, because she had apparently, like, really enjoyed being a clerk and being independent in this way. It seems like, yeah. She'd been doing it for a while and seemed to be, like, good enough at it that people were coming to her. Yeah, so she quits. She quits her, her job and she, at first, lives with Reverend Owen and his wife, but he's um, eventually transferred to Ontario. And she actually lives, um, goes to live at the Winnipeg Lodging and Coffee House. Oh, I know about the coffee house a little bit. I think okay. I talked about it, oh god, during the influenza epidemic, they used the coffee house yeah. as like a sort of like station basically to treat people as like a hospice. Yeah, it's like, um, and like its original purpose is essentially as like a soup kitchen yeah. and like occasional shelter yeah. for, for the unemployed. So yeah, so she's doing her work and she's essentially, like she's living there. She gives up her job and her apartment. Oh, wow. So everything. Everything. And is now living at this lodging house where she can sort of help the poor. Um, and she treats this as sort of a home base. Um, and she begins this work. Um, so in addition to visiting prisoners, um, she, she's also going like the provincial jail mm -hmm. as well. Um, she also visits the homes of like new mothers and people who are ill. Okay. So um, she's kind of lending a hand. She doesn't have any medical training at this point. So she apparently would, like, stay up late at night reading medical textbooks. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and she would make home um, home visits to um, people to teach them um, about, like, how to treat minor ailments. So things like colds, cuts, lice. Okay. Um, and I was thinking about, like, how historically, like, that kind of knowledge is passed down usually through generations. Right, yeah. Um. And immigration can kind of interrupt that knowledge transfer, right, right? yeah. Like, if normally, you know, if your kid had lice, you'd normally ask, like, your mom or grandma, like, yeah. how do I deal with lice with my kid? So I think there is, you know, if your mom's, like, back in Poland, it's like... You can't, like, call her, right? It would yeah. take, how long do you think to get a letter back about right. what to do with the lice issue? <laughs> yeah, by that time, the lice would be pretty bad. Yeah. So I think there was some space there, right, for that to be a, a useful thing yeah. for people. Um, just for that kind of, like, basic health education, especially for, like, young parents. Yeah, and I mean, how much of that then, like, beyond, like, talking to a relative is just completely inaccessible because, like, medical textbooks are not easy to read. No, that's true. Like, where are you supposed to go for that information? Now I'd, now I'd Google it. I'd Google yeah. what do I do when my kid has lice. Or, like, desperately call, like, I would probably call my mom and be like, I don't... Yes, yeah. yeah. Periodically I'll send her a picture of something wrong in my apartment being like, is this, like, cool? Is this okay? Yeah. <laughs> how worried do I need to be about my ceiling cracking? No, I feel like all the time I'll text my dad and be like, how do I clean, like, X thing in my house? <laughs> Once I was at a friend's house and we caught a mouse in her cupboard in a cabinet and we were like, we genuinely don't yeah. know what to do about this mouse. So I had to call my mom and I was like, there's a mouse! Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, like, back then without a phone and also, like, healthcare is not free. Nope. And the doctor's probably don't speak your language. That's a really good point as well. So yeah, I mean, it seems like there's definitely like a need for someone to come in and just kind of give like basic. For sure. Basic like yeah. housekeeping and medical tips to yeah, people that might exactly. not have that. Um, another big thing about Margaret Scott is that I think people just liked her. Yeah. It's funny because she's this like, she does this all this like selfless work. She's kind of like talking about like God constantly, but I think she was also just like kind of fun. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and because of that, there are, like, from the beginning, people who are supporting what she's doing. So, like, she'll go to visit a house and, like, see that it's in need of repair. And, like, she'll get a repair person to come and fix it free of charge. Oh, wow. She sort of has this ability to sort of rally people around her. Okay. And I think a lot of that is just down to, like, oh, it's like Margaret Scott. She's, yeah, we like her. She's you nice. like her. Oh, we'll do this for her. Yeah. Um, 
so she's also able to get support. So initially from this guy, E.H. Taylor, who mm-hmm. had, um, you know, kind of gotten her into this stuff. And later from the city to hire a district nurse to help her. Okay. So it's now her and this nurse just kind of walking around the city. Sure. And, like, specifically in, like, kind of the Point Douglas area and, like, north of the rail lines as well. Yeah, do we want to talk quickly about kind of, like, how the divide sets up in the city? Or is that in your um, notes somewhere? No, it'll it'll sort of come up, but we can talk about that a bit. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, because, like, the divide in Winnipeg, the way we talk about it now, is there's, like, north Winnipeg and kind yeah. of south Winnipeg, and it's bisected by the rail line, which is yeah. right through the city. And you see this kind of in, like, yeah, Point Douglas area, the places yeah. near the rail yards become a very industrial neighborhood where, yeah. like, mostly lower to middle class workers live. And then the further south you go to, like, the bigger estates along, like, Roslyn Road and Osborne Village where all the rich were. Yeah. And I'll talk a little more towards the very end of the episode about how that happens, I think. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, like, when they're walking around, I assume they're not heading to, like, Osborne Village. No, no. They're specifically heading to, like, Point Douglas and then, like, north of the rail Yeah, the places where, like, the new immigrants and the workers are living in kind of yeah. cramped conditions. Yes. Cramped and, like, just, like, bad. Bad yeah. conditions. But it's just the two of them doing that work? It's just the two of them at first. Um, And so, pretty quickly, Margaret Scott is like, okay, uh, like, we need more than this. Also, is the city... Is Margaret Scott the, like, supervisor of the district nurse? I'm curious yes. about the, like, bureaucratic structure of this system. Because um, she doesn't, Margaret Scott does not work for the city. No, she does not work for the city. She's not really working for anyone at this point. There's We're, no formal institution. Is she collecting money, like, through donations, or is she just... That's a really good question. Um, no. She, like, she will take, I guess she must be taking some small amount. Like, she'll, you know, she obviously takes this free lodging. Right, She'll yeah. take sort of food and whatever people will give her. She doesn't take a salary. Okay. Like, she, throughout her life, doesn't really earn money, ever. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, like, that, that's not enough, right? Yeah. Margaret Scott, who's just, like, this random lady. With no medical training. With no medical doing training. And one nurse. That's not enough. So, she... And her supporters as well. Like, Margaret Scott, it is just her actually doing the work, but she does have all these supporters. Okay. Um, and so they begin to see the need for something a little more permanent. Yeah. Um, the two people roving the streets aren't enough? <laughs> what? I do have literally my notes. I have something more permanent than just one woman and a nurse running around town. <laughs> <laughs> just hoping to run into people. Yeah. Um, so meetings to this effect begin in spring of 1904. Um, so a number of women meet in the drawing room of Mrs. A.M. Fraser, quote, looking towards united aggressive action. Aggressive action? Yes. Um, and from the beginning, this is like an explicitly Christian endeavor. Um, there are like several churches who send representatives oh, um, to this founding meeting. Um, and the society that they decide to form is articulated as responding to a desire for, quote, a closer relation between the churches and homes of the ignorant poor in congested and unhealthy districts of the city. Oh, that's some real, like, We're gonna... <laughs> that's some real 1900s, like, reformist Christian uh-huh. language right there. Uh-huh. I recognize that. <laughs> Reeks gonna, of the all people's mission. We're, oh man, yes, we're gonna talk, we're gonna we're gonna get to it. Don't worry. Um, so there are a few ideas kind of thrown around, um, but ultimately what they decide is that they need to get like a permanent house, mm-hmm. um, out of which several nurses can work, and which can also be a hub where like people can come. Yeah, of course. Right, because at this point, like Margaret Scott's just kind of wandering around. You have to catch her, basically. Yeah, you have to. Ca- <laughs> Where's where? <laughs> Where the in the world is like? Oh, I was doing a car oh, in San Diego yeah. thing, but yeah, <laughs> where in the world is Where's Margaret the Scott? one nurse in town? Yeah. 
Um, so in June, they um, present the idea to city council, and city council agrees to provide $2,000 as a lump sum, and then $100 a month toward the running costs of the mission. Okay. Um, but it is really after a series of events in late 1904 that this new society gets the support that it will need. Typhoid, typhoid. <laughs> I know this story. Wait, <laughs> just wait. <laughs> On October 10th, there is a massive fire mm-hmm. in Winnipeg's Exchange District. And I know I know you know where I'm going with this. Oh, but... I know the story about this fire <laughs> yeah. so well. It's so good. But for the listeners, it'll come together. We'll yeah. see we'll see why the fire is significant. So the Tribune's front page reads, quote, Great conflagration causes loss of about half a million. One of the most disastrous fires in city's history, entire wholesale and business section threatened. They also say the fire was the grandest, greatest, and most disastrous in the history of Winnipeg, and that scores of blocks were not consumed by the hungry flames was due to the heroic work of the city's small fire brigade. I mean, I can't overstate that. It was a, like, pretty small number of people who a were- small people and then limited tools. Yeah. And then the fire was huge. It was a paper supply company that went up. Yeah, so this fire started in the basement of the newly completed Bowman building, mm-hmm. which, like you said, it was like a, a printer's building. Yeah. So it was possibly by faulty wiring in a freight elevator that had just been installed. But the basement, first of all, hadn't yet been plastered. So it was just raw wood. Yeah, okay. And full of paper. Yep. It was Strong funny. start. Because <laughs> when I looked this up, they kept saying the basement was full of paper. And I was like, why? Print shop. <laughs> it's a print shop. That's why. Also, I feel like everything downtown was like a walking fire trap. Because yeah. the building next door was, of course, the hardware store. Uh-huh. And that becomes an issue very quickly. So first, the fire works its way up the open elevator shaft and completely engulfs the six-story Bowman mm-hmm. building. Um, the Tribune says, The city was bright as at the time of the setting sun, and great tall buildings reflected the red light, standing out grim and stalwart against the black, smoke-laden sky. So people gather around for, like, blocks around to watch. Um, volunteers were standing on nearby buildings, trying to, like, put out smaller fires as they started. So, like, the Mariagi's right there. The Tribune building is right there. The fire hall is, like, literally right next to it. That's true. The roof of the fire hall was on fire. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, like you said, the fire then does, in fact, spread to the Ashdown Hardware Building, which is full of oils, paints, lumber. Gunpowder that they have not been storing. (laughs) So there are several small explosions in the Ashdown Building. And then what sounds like a huge explosion is actually one of the two solid brick walls of the new Bowman building finally Jeez. collapsing. So just the, the full wall of the building just... Um, so as far as I can tell from the reporting, no one was seriously injured. I think, like, the Bowman building, like I said, it was kind of still under construction, mm-hmm. so there weren't a ton of people in it. Um, but the fire does leave this kind of, like, gaping hole in the win- middle There's of Winnipeg. There's a parking lot where the Bowman block used to be. Is it, um, which, which parking lot? Right behind where that antique store, Antiques oh. and Funk, yeah. used to be. Or, yeah, so then, like, when you go down Bannatine, right behind there's a parking lot, that's where the Bowman Block would have okay, been. Okay, interesting. And then if you look across the street, because I used to do tours in this neighborhood, yeah. so I know the yeah, story. Yeah, you know all the, all the geography here. So, uh, the Ashdown Hardware Store is where Across the Board is today. Yeah. Uh, they rebuilt that building really quickly. Like, it, the fire was in, what, October? Um, yeah. Uh, so they actually managed to build the first 
one story, first two stories of the building in time for Christmas of that year. Wow. And the rest came up in the next, like, year or two afterwards. And if you look at the building today, you can mm-hmm. actually see kind of, like, a stone divider between where they built the first two floors and where the additions went on. Yeah. So you can go check that out if you want to see yeah, the remnants down, of this fire. Go downtown and look at the old Ashdown building. And go, yeah, that's where they built the first two stories, too. <laughs> and then walk away. Anyway. Yeah, so obviously that's significant. People are, like, going and looking at it and being like, wow, big hole. <laughs> Um, but I have the... a picture of the fire somewhere that I sent Ooh. to you the other day. Yes, you did. Yeah. I... And it's crazy. It's yeah. a huge crater we'll, in the ground. We'll put that on the website yeah. for sure. Um, but the greater ultimate significance of this is only referred to just in passing in those initial mm-hmm. articles, which is that in order to put the fire out, water had to be drawn into the city mains from the badly polluted Assiniboine River. Mm-hmm. And about two weeks later, coincidence... Maybe. There is a massive typhoid outbreak. Oh, no. And then in December, the pattern actually repeats. There's another huge fire. Water is again drawn from the Assiniboine. And again, a bunch of people get Mm -hmm. sick. So you ready to get into the gross stuff? Oh, absolutely. This is my section with all the gross stuff. I've been waiting. (laughs) So typhoid, it does still exist. It's very uncommon now in Canada. Um, but it's a bacterial infection. Um, it causes fever and all kinds of like gastrointestinal symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, it's highly contagious and it is transmitted by human waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there have been concerns, like we talked about how rapidly the city has been expanding. And there have been concerns about Winnipeg's water situation, like, basically since Winnipeg was established. Yeah, there was a concern in, like, the Cornish episode the last yeah, time. Yeah, we about... talked about how he went to, like, look at how water was being done in other cities. Yeah, and even, like, I think Cornish had had some complaints about how the Winnipeg hospital was dumping human waste out just kind of into the street. Yeah. And then when that rains, the water then runs that human waste off into our water supply. Mm-hmm, exactly. So, around 1900, the city had created this, like, artesian well system. Mm-hmm. Um... But it wasn't adequate for a growing city. And it's resulting in these instances where water has to be pulled from the rivers, like you said, which have, like, hospital waste going into yeah. them, for instance. And just, you know, regular people's I waste. mean, also industrial junk. Do you yeah. remember a couple years ago when, like, the river was low and we found a bunch of broken bottles from that one yeah, brewery? I went, I went down to the river and got some yeah. glass. So there's just, like, junk in the river. Yeah. Yeah, and so the city actually brings in an expert to try to identify the source of this typhoid outbreak. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love that they thought they needed it, to be honest. But um, So Edwin or- Oaks Jordan is a well-known bacteriologist from the States. He's a graduate of MIT. He's a professor oh, wow. at the University of Chicago. Bringing a big fancy guy for yeah. this one. He also founded the Journal of Infectious Diseases. Okay. So, like, in short, this is a guy who, like, knows what he's doing, right? How long did it take him to find the problem? Like, instantly. <laughs> so, Takes one look around and is like, think I cracked it. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, it's it's all the poop. <laughs> so, no, but I think, like, it's significant just first of all that, like, our young city, which presumably doesn't have that much money to throw around, is like, no, we got to bring in someone. I think that just shows how concerned people were about what's happening. Yeah, I mean, also, he had, like, two big typhoid outbreaks in the span of a couple of months. Yeah. And so... Jordan is the first person to identify the connection between the fires and the following outbreaks. Okay, interesting. He's the guy who's like, hang on, I see a I He's see got a like a conspiracy here. map on the wall and it's just one string between the fire and the typhoid. Yeah. Two. Fire, typhoid, fire, typhoid. <laughs> yeah, so what he says is 
even the occasional use of the raw Assiniboine water is an unwholesome and dangerous practice. So basically, the river is contaminated. We shouldn't be using it. And I like unwholesome as uh, the yeah. word there. <laughs> it's very delicate, like diplomatic, isn't it? <laughs> it's not safe, guys. No. So they've pinpointed the cause of this particular outbreak, obviously, but Jordan doesn't stop there. Because he sees a lot more that is contributing to the fact that Winnipeg's typhoid death rate is so high. Oh my god, how high is it? Compared to other cities. So, okay. <laughs> oh no, what's the comparison? <laughs> okay, so most American cities at this point had a death rate from typhoid of around 2 to 5 per 10,000 population. Okay. Um, Winnipeg's had been approximately 8 to 12 in recent years. Oh, wow. And in 1904 was as high as 24. That's a big jump. Yeah. So we've got um, an average that's like in a normal year, more than twice the, the average American city. And in this year, like up to 12 times as high, right? Which is way too high. Yeah. No, it's really crazy. And like other cities at this time are not doing a great job with a lot of these things either. No, I mean, I feel like fire water supply issues are pretty common issues for like a frontier city, right? Yes. Winnipeg, I guess, has just grown so quickly and is doing an exceptionally bad job, <laughs> apparently. I mean, I mean, like so many people in Winnipeg when it starts as a city are young. Yeah. Probably not like super well trained in the art of like running a city. Yeah. Or medicine. And then you keep like, you bring people in from outside mm -hmm. who know what they're doing, but like over time but like you know they're having a hard time keeping up right yeah there's only so much like the one nurse in town can yeah exactly do. <laughs> okay to be clear there are other nurses yeah. in town she's just the only like the one that's roving around the one that's roving and yeah, not the, like the charging roving nurse yes um, yeah otherwise the nurses would be in the general hospital and you have to pay to go to those yes exactly um so yeah like i said it's really not that complicated for yeah. jordan to figure out what's going on um he points out that winnipeg's well water is actually fine the well water is great if they can just stop this practice of drawing the, upon the Assiniboine River. The problem is that so few houses actually have water connections that they can actually use that well water. Right. So many are just relying on these kind of like local water pumps. Like mm -hmm. generally like at the end of your block, you might have just like a water pump. Yeah. Is this not the story for like the person that discovered like where typhoid was coming from in London? He traced it all back to that one pump. Oh, I don't know this story. I'll, I'll have to look it up. I don't know it super I'll, well. I'll look it up for the bonus episode for this. Okay, good. Yeah, because there is a story like this happened in the UK as well. And that like a like infectious disease mm -hmm. guy kind of traced it back to one specific water pump. Yeah, because those are a big issue. And um, Winnipeg at this point has approximately 12,200 buildings and only about 5,600 sewer connections. So not enough. No. And like, that doesn't mean to be clear that like one out of every two buildings have, have a sewer connection, right? What it means is that like in some areas, every house has a sewer connection. And in some areas, none do. None of them do. And that means they also presumably have like outhouses instead yes. of like a toilet. <laughs> yeah. So um, that's a great segue. Thank you. Um, Winnipeg's public health officer, uh, Dr. Alexander Douglas, he concurs, of course, with Jordan's yeah. conclusions. He's like, yep, I agree. It's the <laughs> it's the gross water. And he points out that about three quarters of typhoid cases were confined to a particular neighborhood near the CP rail line. Mm -hmm. um, so he wrote, probably not one house in 20 has sewer or waterworks connection, but the primeval box closet is used and water drawn from the pump at the corner of the street primeval box closet would okay. you like to explain what a box closet is it's an outhouse um i, <laughs> I have in my notes that it's the nasty cousin of an outhouse <laughs> <laughs> okay fair like essentially it's like okay if you know like an above ground pool 
a box closet is like an above ground outhouse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So instead of digging a hole, I guess it's it's quicker or like it's easier if there's a lot of clay in the ground. You just sort of put a box above the ground, which will yeah. hold the waste. Box um, closet. Yeah. And so with like leakage and flooding, um, that waste often then makes its way out of the box closet. In back to the water supply. Yeah. And just like into the streets. Right. Yeah. Um, so, How stinky do you think Winnipeg was oh my God. on any given day? So stinky. People had farm animals also, as a reminder. Yeah. So there's like horses within city limits. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even in a nice area of town, it probably would have still smelled a bit yeah. like horses and stuff. Yeah. But like, I'm sure as you went into these areas of town where there's no sewer connections, you would have been like, oh no. Oh, exceptionally gross now. And then probably also it smells like smog. You're right by the CP rail station. Yeah. Yeah, true. That's really interesting. I'm just thinking about, like, I'm just thinking about the experience of, like... <laughs> Ooh, sensory history. Ooh, sensory history. It stinks. <laughs> so Edwin Jordan writes in his report, At the time of the writer's visit, fecal material from some of these privies was seen scattered over the whole width of the alley. Ooh. Children play in the alleys upon which these privies abut, and may readily soil their shoes, clothing, and even fingers with infectious material. Dogs and other animals may convey infection into houses in ways that need not be specified. <laughs> I love it's so funny that they're trying to be delicate. I know. I love Jordan because he's trying so hard to be like, you know, a 1900 gentleman. Yeah. And like, in my mind, the one place where you don't necessarily want to be delicate is a thing where it's like, we need to s describe the like, sort of progression of an infectious disease yeah. through public health errors. And I'm like, I'm actually not totally sure I know what you mean by dogs bring it into the house. <laughs> anyway, um, a report in The Voice from late, late 1904 reads, On the east block of Rietta Street, between Logan and Alexander Avenues, in a small area on which there were 17 box closets, the surface water had risen above the level of these boxes. Oh no, so everything's floating right out of them. So that in the spring and early summer, the houses in this vicinity must have been surrounded by a lake of liquid filth. Oh god, ew. <laughs> Super gross. Box closets were apparently draining freely into ditches on the sides of the road in this area, and, quote... The soil being clay in character, there is little or no soakage into the ground, so that each of these ditches is practically a long open latrine extending through several blocks. Oh, God. So there's just ditches full of poop. Um, and the voice says, The wonder is not, we think, that there has been an epidemic of typhoid in the city, but that it has not been more extensive. <laughs> <laughs> like, we know it's really bad compared to everywhere else, but think of how much worse it could have been. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, so, again, funny that they had to, like, bring in a guy to be like, what if there wasn't poop on the ground? Yep. <laughs> Do you think maybe if you stopped having, like, citywide latrines, people <laughs> would stop being sick, maybe? Maybe. So, okay, Jordan Douglas, like, the city's typhoid commission, um, basically everyone agrees that the box closets have got to go. Yep. Um, as do the water pumps on these streets. So, okay. Establishing better, like, water and sewer systems, that's the city's business. Yes, of course. Right? Will the city do this? Kind of. Because <laughs> uh, I know they build the uh, James Street pumping station yeah, two so... years later, and that does not give water to houses. That gives water to firefighters. Yeah. So, like, they do kind of make some improvements in those areas. But a lot of it has to do with insurance rates, too. Like, they're bringing mm. in, like, the James Street pumping station to help businesses as yeah. opposed to helping people. Yeah. 
And yeah, there are a lot of things where they're like, people should just get sewer connections. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> who's going to build those yeah. city of Winnipeg? <laughs> um, Whose job is that? <laughs> yeah. So another factor is that um, some of Winnipeg's neighborhoods are just severely overcrowded and like in general lacking yeah. sanitation. Um, so like what surprised me, but probably shouldn't is that a lot of this is blamed in public discourse on the affected populations. Oh, of course. Uh, I, I don't know. I wrote a paper in university about the all people's mission, which is a charity yeah. group. I'm sure you'll mention even briefly in this one. Maybe? I wasn't really going to bring it up. So oh, yeah, talk. Okay. Let's talk about it. So yeah, there are like missionary groups that will go into the North end to try and like teach immigrants, like the right way to do things. Yeah. And often the, like, ills they're facing, like, poor health care, even when we get into, like, the strike a little bit later on. Yeah. When it's like, oh, of course they're all sick and dying. They're doing things wrong. Yeah. That's often the rhetoric that's used by the people that don't want to pay to fix them. Yeah, totally. And so there's this really good book that I, I read when I was in university called Fit to be Citizens. Oh. Which is, um, so this is about public health efforts in L.A. Okay. Um, in, like, the early 20th century. And, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of parallels <laughs> I think a lot of early cities yeah. around this time are going to have sort of similar struggles, right? Yeah, and so, like, the author points out in that book how immigrant areas in L.A. were described as, for example, quote, that rotten spot that pollutes the air we breathe and poisons the water we drink. The author says, portraying people of Chinese, Mexican, and Japanese ancestry in Los Angeles as threats to public health and civic well-being obscured the real causes of communicable disease and illness. Inadequate medical care, exposure to raw sewage, and malnutrition. So I think you can almost just sort of substitute in the people groups there. Yeah. And we're getting very similar rhetoric here about how the solution to the level of disease in these areas is for people to simply stop living in unsanitary conditions. To get rid of the box closets and replace them with something else, but we can't provide you with any alternatives because that would cost us money as the rich and that could not be done. Yes, and like that often seems to, like this mindset prevents people who are actually in a position of being able to make those changes from doing anything. And I think it really solidifies sort of this, like, mental barrier between, like, kind of North and South Winnipeg yes. or, like, the immigrant areas and the, like, yeah more, like, established neighborhoods, right? It's like, that's the gross part of town. We don't go there because exactly. everything there is stinky and bad. Yes. Yeah. So there's this but point ignores, of view like, that, like, oh, like, that point, that part of town is, like, kind of, like, oh, bound to be bad and gross because yeah. of the people who live there. So either they can fix it or we'll just not go there. As opposed to, like... Maybe the city hasn't invested in this neighborhood in a way that would provide the supports to thrive the way it has for, like, southern neighborhoods. Sure. And so, as an example, A.J. Douglas um, suggests that the solution to box closets is to pass legislation compelling homeowners to put in sewer connections. No! (laughs) Like, we're talking about people who can... In many cases, just barely support themselves. Also, how many of them are the owners of their own home? This how a- many boarding houses are there that are, like, run by some guy that's not going to pay for that? <laughs> this is a great question. Um, A.J. Douglas um, also says, Another menace to the health of the city is the large number of foreigners who are living in a certain section of the city. These people are not familiar with any sanitary code, and in some cases, 10 to 12, and sometimes more, live in a small house, which is, which is probably not large enough to house three or four at the most comfortably. Do you think they want to live like that, AJ Douglas? So city policy in those cases is just to, like, send a notice to the excess residents that they have to go live somewhere else. Where? 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 <laughs> Where are they going to go, buddy? What house? <laughs> yeah, so, like, if you're one of those boarders... You don't have any control yep. over if you're like 
landlord who's yep. also probably struggling to make ends meet. There is this book from the All People's Mission that comes out, I think, around 1910, 1911, so a bit past this point mm-hmm. in the episode, where, like, they have photographs of, like, immigrant homes in the North End. Yeah. And, like, they are, like, squalid homes and, like, little shacks. Yeah. And the point that is often made when talking about them is that those homes are not generally indicative of what the North End looked like. Mm-hmm. What uh, This is uh, L.B. Foote, who we'll talk about a bit later on in, like, his people with the All People's Mission, is they found the worst spots in the North End. Sure. Took photos of the worst home they could find and said, look at the squalor these people are living in. Yeah, and that's definitely the examples that they're using here as well. Right. And there's also this weird kind of rhetoric about, like, the, like, kind of shifty immigrant, like, landlord who's, like, like, I'm sure there were, like, landlords who were doing all kinds of shady things. Mm-hmm. But in a lot of the cases, these are just, like, people who need to bring in borders because they can't afford their house. Yeah, people are living with, like, multiple family groups, especially. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. The, the like, rhetoric around the North End and, like, sort of industrial neighborhoods at the time is always, like, you have to really work to get around it. Yeah. So a lot of it is just, like... Uh, the icky immigrants. Yeah, so I think, like, to some extent, it's to Margaret Scott's credit that she's even trying to do some kind of intervention here, yeah. right? Because I think, like, a, a lot of these officials aren't even willing to do that. No, at the most, they're trying to legislate them into using better bathrooms. Yeah. <laughs> it's very funny to be like, if we just pass legislation... Then they'll have to poop somewhere else. Then they'll have to poop somewhere else. And it's like... I don't know that people are choosing to live that way. No, and I feel like it's a weird assumption that, like, uh, all of these immigrants are used to living yeah, like this back home. They brought this with them and not like they've arrived in a situation. Where... Yeah. So, like, Margaret Scott, though, and her supporters do still kind of exist in that paradigm where, like, I find that I see, like, a lot of emphasis on education when that can really only go so far. Right, yeah. Without the resources to back it up, mm-hmm. right? So, like, yes, you can teach your kid or teach someone how to treat their kids lice but like that's only there's only so far that can go when they're bringing home lice every week yeah because everyone's got lice <laughs> um so there are other causes for concern at this point obviously not just typhoid um so i talked to essel jones for mm-hmm. this episode um she's a professor of history at the u of m um, she's done a lot of work on the history of disease and health. Um, Her book, uh, Influenza 1918, is really good if you want to read, like, yeah. a Winnipeg disease book. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to hear more about gross stuff or just, like, health health and disease history. I use it for uh, an upcoming episode in the podcast. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she talked me through some of the health concerns at the time and, in particular, um, infant mortality. I mean, you know, Winnipeg was a very er new city then, right? So new settler colonial city. Um, You know, my general understanding of the history of infant mortality in the 19th and early 20th century is that certain aspects of um, the advancement of industrial capitalism created these perfect conditions for infant mortality. Um, Yeah, poor housing conditions, poverty itself, um, a lot of pressure on you know, the poorest of working class women having to work when their babies were still quite small Mm -hmm. uh, because there were no supports for them um, to not, you know, need that wage, right? No income support. Um, And just a generally poor level of health among working class people, you know, much shorter lifespans than than we have today um, because of the pretty, you know, low levels of um, standards of living, right? Right. So, you know, all of those problems that, pro- that poverty creates that makes it harder for people to be healthy, 
everything from their diet to their housing conditions, um, you know, the number of hours they work, the safety of their working conditions, all of those things contributed to infant mortality in the sense too that infant mortality was sometimes seen as and still is seen as a marker. High infant mortality is a marker of societies that generally have poor health um, right. standards or, or levels. Yeah. So like a, almost like a canary in the coal mine, if you oh, want to yeah. have a shorthand for where societies are at, infant mortality is a really is accepted as an important measure of that. Mm -hmm. So the fact is that like much of Winnipeg is just in very ill health generally, or yeah. just like living in really unfortunate circumstances mm -hmm. and the infrastructure really isn't there to deal with it. No, no, definitely not. So um, in November of 1904, right in the thick of the city's worst ever typhoid outbreak, the new Margaret Scott Nursing Mission Society, which has been officially formed, they hold a larger public meeting at the YMCA. They're essentially pitching this idea to, like, wealthier Winnipeggers. Okay, yeah. So they've got this kind of core group of women on board, and they're kind of, like, trying to bring people with actual money and resources right, into Right, yes, fold. of course. I feel like this is a lot of also, like, middle and upper class women, like, going back to their husbands, right, and being like... Right. Honey, you have to do this. Yes. This is the only hobby that gets me out of the house. Like, Alloway's going to be there. Don't you want to impress him? Right, yeah, of course. This is a networking event for you. Yes. <laughs> um, And, yeah, what is interesting, too, is that, like, Margaret Scott and, like, her kind of friends and, like, immediate supporters were, like, certainly driven by their faith, but a lot of the people who show up at this, like, first big meeting and a lot of the, like, ultimate supporters of the mission were, like, business owners and mm -hmm. Winnipeg boosters. Um, people who see, like, Winnipeg as a hub, right? Yeah. We talked about these, these kind of, like, lofty ideas for Winnipeg yeah. going forward. Um, people who think that it will become a major modern city if the proper investment is done. Right, yes, of course. Um, and people who had a vested interest in a healthy labor force. Right, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's not great if all of your workers are always sick with typhoid. No, right? You at least want your workers to be well enough to come to work. And then work your, like, 12-hour shift in the factory and then yeah. go home. And if they break their leg, we don't have to pay them extra, but whatever. Yeah, so for example, um, J.H. Ashdown is there. Um, he comments on the, quote, common business prudence of such an investment for the betterment of the health of the poor that is fascinating he is there because yeah. i find he's not often super involved in like he's, he was the mayor around this time I think yeah. he's mayor the next year interesting so maybe he was trying to be a little more like public yeah. facing then because like when he's uh, arrested during the like real resistance mm -hmm. he's in town at the time and he is arrested and then like never really talks about that again mm. he's like his business shuts down during the strike, but we don't hear any of his thoughts about it. Like, yeah. I don't know. He's a weird guy to get a pin on his thoughts. So it's fascinating yeah. that he turns up to this. And I'm pretty sure it's he's mayor either this year or the next. Like, Okay, that would make sense then if he's like... I'm trying to remember. I don't yeah. know why. I'm like, of course I know Ashton's mayoral terms, but it's around this time. <laughs> They're only one year long, so it's hard to keep track well, of Well, he them. did twice. Oh, I think did? he did okay. two, but they weren't, like, yeah. they weren't one after the other. Yeah, and, like, the list of, like, who become the mission's first members is basically like a who's who of Winnipeg. Oh, of course. I mean, there's only yeah. like, what, 12 rich guys? Also. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Ashdown is there. Um, the Alloways are there. Mm -hmm. um, e. Cora Hind. Oh, of course. Uh, the Moody's who are kind of like around. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there, I mean, there's a long list, but a lot of these are like. Is the Fortune family prominent. there? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to look back at my notes. Um, and yeah, for many of them, this is like partly an economic investment. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, D.W. Bowl, who ran a drug company and had been president of the Winnipeg Board of Trade, says, Every good immigrant brought in was valued at $1,000 to the state, and that the lives already here were just as valuable to preserve. I don't like that they're saying the monetary value no. of people at... That's icky. No, he's basically saying, oh, we save $1,000 if someone doesn't die. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's why we need public health policy, is yeah. to save us money as the businessmen. Yeah, so, like, certainly that's not the um, driving force of, like, Margaret Scott herself. No, no, she seems very driven by... By, like, like her, her faith, faith right? Her yeah. faith, for sure. And and I think just, like, a general view to, I don't know, helping people. Yep. Um. And, like, these people do speak again and again of their, like, deep respect for Margaret Scott. Um, I think she had this way of kind of, like, quietly working within the system to get things done. Right? Like, you see, like, she's living a very different life to these kinds of people, but she's willing to bring them into her fold. Right, yeah. If it can kind of help things out. In certain ways. We'll talk about the sort of, her sort of restrictions on this in a bit. Oh, interesting. It it is interesting. Um, Unfortunately, she herself actually gets typhoid. Um, I mean, if she's living in a lodging yeah. house in that community, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, just a few months into the existence of the mission, and she's out of commission for, like, several months, which is pretty oh, unfortunate. Yeah. But I think it almost does help the support that people are, like, having, they're, like, having the first meetings of the society, and they're like, oh, poor Margaret Scott is, like, laid up in bed. This woman we all, like, love and has kind of, yeah. like, gathered us here today, essentially, right? Yeah. And so, um, in addition to, like, city and individual funding, the mission also manages to get a couple other important funding sources. Um, CP Rail agrees to donate um, $50 a month to help pay the salary of a nurse. Okay. Which I found really interesting. Okay. Yeah, and I think, like, a big unsung hero of this episode is Louise Minty, who's the secretary of the mission for quite a long time. Okay. And she is constantly kind of, like, niggling at people to like ah. get money for the mission there is there's a lot to be said for someone who's extremely persistent in getting money yes. for a passion project and just like you know like writes letters to the cp rail oh. being like hey this is like in your best interest because you're like bringing people in and don't you want to look good and like don't you want to help these people that you're bringing to the area yeah yeah interesting um they also managed to get um support from the department of immigration in kind of a limited context okay so they agree to pay a similar amount to the mission as they pay to hospitals. So the policy of the Department of Immigration at this time is kind of interesting. In the first year that an immigrant was in the country, they would um, pay a certain amount towards their medical costs. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, But often, like, the mission is, what I found a lot of in the archives is the mission sending them lists of, like, 25 people and them sending back like oh here's the five of those that we can actually give you money for Hmm. because um they need to be traced to a ship's manifest actually showing that they immigrated in the last year which is often difficult for a variety of reasons so one language barriers just getting someone's name um i mean getting all the way back to like pier 21 which is where the ships would have landed (laughs) right right? um getting the spelling of the name right which uh, city officials would are like government officials changed yeah. sometimes. So like you might spell your name one way, but they'd be like, no, thank you. All I can't t- spell like, that constantly. So they'd say like, oh, we can't trace per- this person back to a ship's manifest. Um, the mission also tries to explain to the department that like many cases happen like two to three years in, right? Like they ask for a bit of flexibility yeah. and I mean, it's the government. It's a They're resounding like, no. No, of course. We don't do flexibility. <laughs> we have our one policy. We will never deviate yeah. regardless of its implications. Um, anyway, so what Scott and her supporters really want is a permanent house, 
right? They've got mm -hmm. kind of like a rented space for a little while at the beginning where people can come for medical treatment and where they can also set up living quarters for a number of nurses. And in 1905, they get a house. Hey! Yeah. So um, they get like a bunch of like donor money for this. They get a large two-story home on George Street. I think this, I think it's still there. I wrote a Heritage Winnipeg blog on this house. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I think I used some of your descriptions <laughs> from it in here. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. More often than not, I'll be like Googling something for the an episode and be like, that was me. I, I did this. I saw that and I was like, I wonder if Sabrina wrote this. Did you go to the bottom and my name was there? <laughs> I think, I don't think it was there. They may have At some point off. they stopped. Yeah. At some point the policy was changed a little bit towards like, yeah. if your name was directly on the article or not, but that was me. I wrote that one. Anyway, yeah. So it's this um, big, so I'm just telling the listeners then because you already know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's a big house with uh, sunny yellow curtains, mismatched donated furniture, and a cellar stocked with food and linens. And a beautiful stained glass window. Yeah, it had this beautiful stained glass window upstairs. Um, and also the nurses slept two to a room upstairs. That was their living quarters. How um, many nurses do they have by this point? If you know. Uh, right off the bat, they only have a couple. It, it definitely increases over time. Yeah. And I'm assuming these nurses are all, uh, like, kind of unmarried women in, like, their early 20s, right? If they're living yes. in the building? Yeah. Yeah. So this actually, yeah, it does become an issue over time that they have a hard time getting experienced nurses. Right. Because I'm assuming once they're married, the ex expectation is they stop being a yeah. nurse living in a boarding house yes. functionally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the things I asked Esselt about was what it was like to obtain medical care in the early 1900s. Oh. But medical care itself um, wasn't easy to access. So, you know, if you had an illness like tuberculosis, for instance, um, it could be difficult to get care for it. And slightly later, you see more public investment in institutional care, sanatorium care for people with TB. Um, and if you had an infectious disease, there was a kind of mechanism to kick in some support because of the desire to contain the disease, right? And stop it from spreading. So mm -hmm. people could be treated, for example, at the municipal hospitals, which are now the current Riverview. So there, there was a tuberculosis hospital and also a dedicated hospital for infectious diseases. So if your children got diphtheria or scarlet fever, they could access medical care through that. Um, but for more chronic conditions or disabilities, very hard. And um, if you wanted to receive medical care or, tr or tried to receive medical care at the Winnipeg General, for instance, which is now Health Sciences Center, you usually had to, you were financially screened. So as she says, there were certain programs in place for treating people with things like communicable diseases, but that leaves a huge gap for people who are otherwise ill or disabled and couldn't afford medical mm -hmm. care, right? It costs money or, you know, the things that don't cost money have pretty significant barriers. Right, in place. yeah. So the mission... Um, expands from just Margaret Scott's efforts and she becomes this kind of like rallying force. Okay. Um, a lot of doctors uh, donated their time to the mission to help its uh, patients about 20 to 40 on average each month. Oh, wow. That's yeah. a lot of doctors. It's a lot of doctors who were, and we're like, hitting the point where there's trained doctors and not just a guy like John Christian Schultz. Who's like, I went to medical school. Oink. <laughs> I'm a quote surgeon. <laughs> Oh, God, there's one guy. I think in the polio episode we talked about where his, like, first foray into medicine was he was, like, 
he helped a surgeon when he was 11 or something. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so we're hitting, like, trained doctor period of the city. Yeah. Um, and so they also arranged for, like, local medical colleges to, um, like, train their doctors and nurses using the mission. Oh, Which is, okay. like, kind of clever, right? Yeah. Um, so after a time, they the mission actually had quite a good base of, like, real medical professionals. That's such a big... How long has it been since Margaret Scott started... Oh, God. How long has it been since Margaret Scott started doing this? Like... Not very long. Like, even, you know... Say, less than a decade? Yeah. Like, at this point, you know, even if we're only, like, a year in, they've still got really significant, mm. um, like, support yeah. right off the bat. Um, and this is this is kind of going forward a little bit, but um, Essel talks about um, this kind of medical basis in the context of the Spanish flu pandemic. Oh, of course. Um, nursing care and pandemics. And the, the mission cared for a lot of people in the fall of 1918 and the winter of 1919 who lived in that district of Winnipeg, right? The, the Point Douglas, um, what we would now mostly refer to as Point Douglas in the North mm -hmm. End District. And they made nearly 1,400 home visits to patients in, in the fall of 1918. Wow. And another 400 in early 1919. And, you know, many of them became ill themselves. But the, the, nurse, the nursing project, the missions project during the flu pandemic was also, it seems clear to me that they recruited extensive non-nurse volunteers and also a lot of doctors because according to the research that that I did um, there were about 30 or 40 physicians who volunteered to work with the Margaret Scott mission during the flu pandemic which is a lot of doctors really wow. uh, very impressive ability to kind of bring volunteers together and these physicians would have done it you know they wouldn't have been particularly well remunerated for that mm -hmm. um, they were just doing it to help out um, so they were also kind of a hub for, for volunteer resources too. So a lot of families really helped, um, that, that needed it. We'll hear a bit about that yeah, in our so, Helen Armstrong episode too. That's going to come up again. Yeah. Um, so typically patients, um, paid, uh, what they could, when they could to mm -hmm. the mission, um, either in kind often, like if, you know, if they had whatever backyard chickens, you could pay in eggs, you know, yep. um, or in money when they were well enough to work. Um, so visits included, um, in addition to, you know, these kind of, um, like, epidemic situations, just on a regular basis, they include um, typhoid patients, obstetrical patients, so these are, you know, um, either new or expectant mothers, mm -hmm. um, infants and sick children, um, the aged and chronic is how they labeled it. Okay. Uh, surgical dressings, a small number of operations, and what they just label as miscellaneous. So... I'm assuming like kind of like a broken leg or whatever. Yeah. So right? those are those are their sort of categories. Um, and it becomes pretty clear that this is filling a need. So um, from January 1905 to January 1906, the the number of visits conducted by the mission more than doubles. Oh wow. Yeah. So they're doing like, you know, upwards of like a thousand visits each month. Jeez, that's so many people. Yeah. Um, a lot of the visits are to newer expectant mothers, um, so they're doing things like, in addition to medical care, right, they're, like, providing linens and clothing, mm -hmm. um, like, basic education. Yeah. Um, as they put it, quote, to see that the little family has food and some supervision as to cleanliness and proper clothing. 
I mean, again, the, the language is, yeah, yeah, we, we don't love it. But There's a couple uh, notes from, like, other charity groups like this being like, we're going to teach these immigrant mothers how to play with their children the proper way, oh, too. Oh, boy, yeah. Where it's like, we don't like the songs they're singing or, yeah. like, the games they're playing. In- we will yeah. teach them English ways yeah. of doing things. It's interesting. Like, and there is some of that from the Margaret Scott mission as well. But I guess their focus is less on, like, the moral health of the family it does, to it some does extent, definitely right? come up but um yeah oh yeah and they're also providing like help around the house as yeah. well for like mothers who are otherwise relying on their older children for much of the housework while which also well. people should still be doing for like yeah. friends that have kids and stuff so like in some ways this is a really like interesting organization because like if you today go to the doctor the doctor isn't gonna come and like look after your kid while they help you no. with something right so like there's some value here i think to having this be like a woman-led organization where they're like, oh, yeah, you, like, need someone to watch your yeah. kid for a bit while you clean. Well, I mean, it's the old, like, it takes a village, right? Yeah. This is providing multifaceted community support, essentially, yeah. right? As opposed to, like, well, fix your leg. Yeah. But then you're on your own. Yeah. Um. So other people who might have had a hard time accessing, like, accessing traditional medical care for reasons, like, aside from finances, right? Yeah. So, like, older people who can't be moved from their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone with a disability. Yeah, anyone. Yeah, anyone who would have a hard time getting to a hospital, right? Um, men who can't afford to take a day off work. Oh, right. They could. They could, for instance, like on their way home, just like stop by to quickly have an injury bandage, instead of, as they say, like taking half a day to go to the hospital. Right. Yeah. With it, which they can't necessarily afford, mm-hmm. which is like really upsetting oh. for someone to just be like, "Oh, I'll quickly get my injury bandaged right. and then go back to work the next yeah. day," presumably. Yeah, and, like, mothers who can't leave their children at home, right, to go to a doctor. They're also picking up some of the slack from the hospitals, which are very crowded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Um. I'm joking. <laughs> oh. Hospitals are crowded, oh, I Alex. See. <laughs> I see. I got it. <laughs> I thought you wanted me to describe just, like, crowded hospitals in, like, 1905. No, I've, I've been to a hospital. I'm like, they're, they're crowded. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. They are also crowded today. Yeah. <laughs> but we do not have a nursing mission to come to our houses actually there are still like district nurses but um and yeah like we've it's come up a few times but we can talk about a little more here um one of the threads that um and we're going to talk about it more again is that this is not just medical care it's also explicitly a moral intervention Mm -hmm. in many cases right so according to the mission quote these people must be taught how to live yeah there's a real like subset it's a, sort of a Protestant, like, movement yes. around this time. Yeah. And they're also pretty heavily involved in the temperance movement mm-hmm. and in women's right to vote. Yeah. It's all kind of the subset of the same people being like, we have to, as, like, moral, middle, upper class Christian women, yeah. and men in some cases, lift all of these poor people from their drudgery. It's our, like, duty, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to talk about this a little later, actually, but we can talk about it now, is that um, Margaret Scott and almost certainly, like, most of the board members were driven by the social gospel is what we call a lot of this that was the word i was looking for and i couldn't remember i'm (laughs) glad you had it so this is a movement in the um it's especially prominent in in the early 20th century that called upon christians to um do what they could to address social ills through direct action and renunciation of personal wealth Mm -hmm. so what margaret scott has done essentially oh yeah she is literally she's sort of the the living embodiment of (laughs) the social the social gospel Um, So this is a version of Christianity, like you said, it's a version of Protestantism that ties your good acts in life to your salvation. Mm -hmm. Um, And Margaret Scott's personal motto was, 
If in trying to serve God, I have been privileged to cheer and comfort others, my highest aim has been attained. The one downside to a lot of these organizations that tied themselves to this movement was that there was often this kind of moralizing and, and othering aspect. There's a distinct separation between the person helping and the person being helped. Yeah. And there is, I think, it's similar to some of the rhetoric used by, like, the government when it comes yeah. to, like, indigenous people. Like, this kind of, like, patronizing or, like, paternalistic attitude towards, yeah. like, the poor or, like, the yeah. sort of different, right? Like, yeah. we must care for these people because they don't know better. Yeah. Um, they also, like, so here's an example. They describe the men in their care as usually single men far from home and friends and from their own or someone else's fault usually at the lowest extremity financially yes and morally so yeah there's this big um emphasis on on these sort of moral failings as yeah. well um and i'll i'll come back to that again because i had some social gospel stuff sort of later in okay. in my notes and i want to talk about the sort of that separation between like the board and the patients in like um more concrete terms. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so ideology aside for the moment, the mission is doing incredible work. Yeah. It sounds and, like they're actually like very much helping the people in the community they're in. Yeah. Like I don't think there's any sort of putting that aside. Right. No. Um, and I mean, I'm sh how many of the people that are like going there to fix an arm really care that much about the Protestant side of things? That's true. Like a lot of these are just like young nurses. Right. Yeah. But also like the people going to access the care. I don't know. Oh, if that's th true. I they're see what like, you mean. Yeah. They probably don't know or care that much that, like, they're doing this other thing. They can, however, help me, like, get fresh linens for my house. Yeah, totally. You're like, whatever, I'll hear them talk about God for a little bit if, like, they'll give me yeah. some clothes for my new baby. Yeah. That's fine. Um, yeah, I feel like the word tireless was, like, basically invented for Margaret Scott and, like, <laughs> <laughs> the nurses who were working with her. Um, oh, at some point, the board passes a motion asking Margaret Scott not to leave her room before 8.30 in the summer and 9 in the winter, <laughs> to have her breakfast in bed, and not to answer telephone calls before these hours or after 6 p.m. <laughs> oh my god, imagine being such a hard worker. A board is like, knock it off. Yeah, Take like, a break, Margaret. Like, they're literally at the board meeting like, Margaret, please stop. <laughs> And she's, like, answering the call in the meeting and is like, no, no, hold on. No, because she would, she would answer calls at night and, like, walk miles to someone's house in, like, Point Douglas or whatever. And I'm assuming all year round, too, so, like, dead of winter, 100%, right? A hundred percent, yeah. And, like, a thing that comes up every so often is that, like, she apparently had kind of a delicate constitution. <laughs> oh, no. So she was, like, making herself ill, I think, pretty all frequently. Do you think there was some, like, staff member there that was, like... Okay, your main job is being a nurse. Your second job is to just gonna keep Margaret in the house today. <laughs> Please keep her inside. It's so yeah. cold. She's gonna get sick again. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So she continues her kind of individual work. Like the nurses are going yeah. around now, but she's like dividing her time between um the mission, and she's still going to the like coffee house to do work oh, wow. there. So, um, yeah, she walks miles a day. She's always carrying, like, a little black bag. This becomes, like, her thing that she's always got this little black bag. Cute. Um, eventually one of her supporters gets her a bicycle, so that helps a little bit. She's just, like, cycling all around. I was gonna say, some real Murdoch mystery stuff right there. Yeah. As a joke, just for the two of us. <laughs> um, do you want to hear the story about how she got her pony? She got a pony? She got a pony. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, here's the story from, uh, that I got from the archives. So... One day, she was stopped by a businessman she, she knew who said, Mrs. Scott, you're doing too much, walking too much. Now I'd like to help you. If I gave you a pony, do you think you can get a cart to take you on rounds? 
I'm sure I can, replied this believer in prayer. <laughs> Later on that same day, while talking to another businessman, he told her he had a pony cart he wanted to give her, but would have to arrange somehow to get a pony. <laughs> I already have the pony, laughed Mrs. Scott, so we'll have to get them together, and she told of her earlier meeting. What a coincidence, both in one day, exclaimed the man. Not coincidence, replied Mrs. Scott, just God's way of answering my prayer. <laughs> So I think what actually happened is these two business guys colluded yeah. to trick Margaret Scott into sticking a pony in a cart. You know what? Actually, I hadn't thought of that, and I think you're probably right. With like, okay, like I'm gonna run into her first. And I'm gonna be like, I've got a horse I gotta get rid of, yeah. and then you come in up and you say, I have a cart I gotta get rid of, mm -hmm. and then she'll say yes to both and not be like, I don't need it, because that does seem like something she would do to be like a pony and a, a cart. cart. How excessive. Yeah. But this time it's like, what a twist of fate. Two um, unrelated incidents where people were trying to give me a pony and a car. On the same day. Um, the pony's name was Joe. Oh. Like J-O. Um, and yeah, she becomes like well-known. They call her like the lady with the pony. Oh. She becomes well-known riding her pony cart around Winnipeg. Um, she kept an ice box in the back filled with milk and butter and like food to give to people. She often like picked up children as she went and they'd like just like give them little rides. That would be so fun. Yeah, if you were a kid, just, like, bored and running around the streets. You're apparently, like, filth-covered streets also. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then you don't have to walk through the filth. Yeah. Um, apparently children would save pennies to give to the lady with the pony. Oh. Um, yeah, so she becomes this sort of, like, almost, like, folk hero figure. That's so interesting. Right? Um, apparently often, like, other nurses from the mission, if they were in a home, would get called Margaret Scott. Just, like, anyone could be yes, Margaret Scott. Yes, they were like, oh, like, Margaret Scott is here. And they're like, sure. <laughs> I, I am also Margaret Scott. Um, a few other developments in the meantime. Yeah, more nurses are hired. Um, so, Miss Beverage, she was the second nurse who was Ms. hired. Miss Beverage? Yes. Not spelled like a drink. Spelled okay. differently. <laughs> okay. That was my main question. <laughs> spelled with, like, I-D-G-E. Uh, okay, okay. Anyway. Anyway, she was the second nurse hired by the mission, and she be eventually becomes the supervising nurse. So you would ask earlier, like, is Margaret Scott just, like, supervising? Like, no. So they've got this supervising nurse. Okay. So Margaret Scott can continue going around for miles on end on her pony. We're gonna let her do her own thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also hire a nurse in 1910, especially to attend to children. Okay, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. Is the secretary still with them by this point? Oh, good question. This is around, like, 1910. I'm not sure if Louise Minty was still with okay. them. I feel like she was with them for a pretty long period okay. of time. Um, also, like, it's just, it's interesting the way women participate in historical events. Because, like, I had to look up the history of Louise Minty's husband to find her first name. That is often how I have to do it, too, when I'm looking. Yeah. What I will often do is find the husband's obituary. Yes. Find her name. I've done that so many times. Go I, back. I'm going to try and maybe write up a little thing for her for the MHS or something. You should. Because I feel like she did so much and yeah. her name is nowhere. I mean, it's always, it's, I think, so much, like, extra work to find out about these women that, like, yeah. not everyone has the tools to do. Yeah, yeah. And even, like, when I found it, I was like, ooh, am I, like, 100% sure that's her first name? And, like, you can go through vital statistics, but their yeah. stuff is only available online until, like, uh, 80 to 70 years yeah. ago. Um, in any case, um, they also create a Little Nurses League, which they, oh. like, teach, like, basically classes of little girls, like, hygiene and, like, baby care, I guess, when they're older and sanitation. Okay. Which is good, like, yeah. right? So then, you know, so it's they like, give them little sacks of flour to carry around and then get into, like, wacky hijinks with their school I mean, buddies. it's basically, like, you know, health class, it's right? It's yeah. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so let's get back to the sort of social gospel stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to talk about this sort of, like, separation and this sort of othering aspect. Um, so here's a quote um, from the mission. They say, the people with whom one comes in contact in district work are all, are all, however, not of the lowest and most degraded. Many new to the country are putting in their preliminary hard time, having had bad luck, illness, loss of work, and are stranded for the time being. They need to be helped, encouraged, and tided past their time of distress. Others, wives and children, suffer through a lazy, incompetent, drunken, or sick husband or father. So there's this real sort of tug of war that I see in the yeah. rhetoric of the mission between like, ooh, it's not their fault, but like, is it a little? Is bit? it a little bit? There's something so interesting in there about the preliminary hard time. Like this is like a yes. hurdle they have to get past, like a sort of growing pains, of, which does like, seem like kind of maybe like a particularly Protestant mindset, right? Like there is a hard time you have to overcome. Yeah, and they're like, oh, we're here for that. But maybe, but not forever. Yeah. Well, because then if you help them too much, they'll become dependent on you. Yeah. Um, and Esselt talked a little bit about this framework when we discussed um, financial screening. And Margaret Scott also financially screened people. Oh, interesting. So, um, it was like what we might call today a means test. Mm. And you had to be able to demonstrate that you couldn't pay for any portion of medical care. Um, and a lot of working people found this very demeaning. It was, right. you know, invasive and, um, you know, prove your poverty, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And it certainly was not a right. It was mm-hmm. not a it was not a human rights or rights based approach to delivering care. It was very much, you know, you need to show that you were a member of the deserving poor. Right. Um, yeah. And that's the paradigm that Margaret Scott worked with then yeah so like with the creation of the mission right like this is no longer just margaret scott going and visiting houses right she had to contend with the involvement of board members i mean this is always the issue when you try and take like kind of a good deed you're doing and then like yeah so everyone gets involved she has her viewpoint which is sort of like the guiding paradigm i feel like but there, there are also these other and there's like yeah viewpoints coming in and like conflicting ideologies maybe right And so let's talk a little bit about who those board members were or like what kinds of people they were. So most were from the wealthier south end of the city. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be terribly surprising. What? (laughs) Um, It doesn't seem that a single board member ever lived in the north end, which is the area the mission primarily served. How many of them employed people that lived in the north end? Ooh, great question. (laughs) Probably quite a few. Um, And it's interesting. So... Margaret Scott is often called, like, an urban missionary. And I find it an interesting term because it implies that she's sort of, like, foraying into this, like, dangerous or, like, exotic locale. So this is what my paper was about in university. Okay, yes. Tell us more. Uh, So I was writing specifically about the All People's Mission and Mm -hmm. how they were going into the North End as missionaries, right? They were going in there as acts of faith, the way you would see someone go today to, like... Africa or Mexico to build a house it's a similar thing but they're just applying that same ideology to like our own backyard yes and the way they talk about the north end there's this like subset of uh, historiography called borderlands history Mm -hmm. this is really niche stuff it (laughs) might be getting too inside baseball but it's this idea of like kind of a conflicting space right where Mm -hmm. like kind of ideologies and identity and like firm lines are like don't really exist yet and the north end seems to kind of perpetually exist as that where like 
the little immigrant zones kind of move around. Like, sure. you'll have a Jewish settlement in one neighborhood that might kind of move around the next. Yeah. The city's not really intervening in any meaningful way. So the people That's are true. coming in there to try and impose a very specific type of order on a neighborhood that they don't see it as having it. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I read this one dissertation about this. And what the author of that wrote was, the house of 90 at 99 George Street, so that's the mission mm-hmm. house, became, in the psychological landscape of its founders and supporters, an outpost of civilization in a foreign land. Yep. So that's exactly what you're saying, right? It's this sort of, like, outpost where they're trying to bring... It's this contested space in the city that they want to rein in. Yeah. And it's really interesting that, um, yeah, like, Margaret Scott is sort of, like this missionary that they're all like oh this like brave woman but like we're not gonna do that but she, she can, can do, do that yeah <laughs> we want nothing to do with this neighborhood but she can go in there if she yeah wants. and so this like difference is also exacerbated by like you had talked about there's these like you know different kinds of like national and ethnic mm-hmm. groups in the north end so there are definitely like linguistic cultural and religious differences mm-hmm. between the people on the board and the communities that they're serving So the majority of people who came to the Margaret Scott House for aid came from non-English speaking countries, Mm -hmm. mostly Eastern Europe. Um, In contrast, all of the board members that we know of were British, Canadian or American. How many of the staff spoke non-English languages? Do you know if they trained them in like Ukrainian? I don't know that offhand. Um, I don't think that was a big part of what they were trying to do. Interesting. And I think probably part of the reason for that is because of this sort of like Canadianizing mission. I need to, my paper was the Canadianization of the North There Ed. you go. <laughs> yeah, but what you say, the All People's Mission trained some of their employees in, like, mm. Eastern European languages so they could at least, like, kind of start communicating with the people right. in the North End. So it's interesting the Margaret Scott Mission might not have prioritized that as much. Yeah, I mean, they may have, like, yeah. it, but it but didn't, it certainly yeah. didn't come up a ton in the Yeah, stuff it's not, I like, in the board's at. writing. Yes. Yeah, okay, anyway. Um, nearly all of their patients were Catholic or Jewish, as opposed to the, like, obvious Protestant men that we've been talking about of the elite, um, and all members of the original board were Protestant. Mm -hmm. Um, nearly 90% of their patients were immigrants. So, yeah, there's this real, just, like, pretty concrete differences between the people who are, um, being served and the people who are, like, on this board guiding this. I think the idea of like community consultation didn't exist. Didn't yet. exist for many decades. Yet. No, no, and I'm wondering how many of the board members actually ever went to the facility itself then too to like see things. Um, great question. Uh, they did. They did. Um, okay, cool. So yeah, so board members would do this thing where they would sort of like go on little home visits. Okay. Like with Margaret Scott yeah. or like with one of the nurses, but they definitely set it up. I feel like in the same way that you do for like. You know, like when high I've school. Wor- I've worked in nonprofits before, <laughs> and this does seem a lot like, oh God, one of the big like board members is coming by. We got to give them an experience, or else they're not yes, gonna like it. Or like, you know, when like high school students go and do like missionary works, so you give them right. like the kind of like gentle job to do, and yeah. like, um, so like they typically bring them to like British or like English speaking. Uh, homes. The good homes in quotation yes, marks, and to the homes of the sick rather than the poor. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I guess sickness is not a moral failing in the way exactly. poverty is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's really interesting. And there's like, there's some other interventions. There's this one um, instance that I, I wish I knew more about, but where one of the board members actually adopted a child from one of the families that had been like visited multiple times. Oh, interesting. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm quite troubled by that. Yeah. I the, don't, I don't uh, know that I can art- articulate exactly why. 
there is a real thing of like adopting underprivileged children like removing them from their homes to save them but then completely disconnecting them from whatever culture and family ties they may have had yeah and it's like i don't know the specifics of that story but it seems odd that they had so little involvement in that community but they took that kid from it but took that child from there so yeah but i'm sure they thought they were saving the child oh 100 percent um, and actually, we are going to talk in the bonus episode for this episode okay. um, about a book which was written, which actually features a fictionalized version of Margaret Scott and which really reflects these attitudes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Her, her name's even Margaret in the book. Like it's, it's, oh, a, wow. direct, okay. it's a direct sure, okay. uh, borrowing of her. Um, okay. So one of the most unusual aspects of the margaret scott nursing mission was that it did not solicit donations oh so this is really interesting and it's hard to kind of pin down exactly what they were and were not willing to do because obviously like louise minty was writing to all these people being like money money please (laughs) (laughs) and it's seemingly successfully doing so they would like they would not join forces with or accept donations from other charities that like solicited donations they wouldn't publicly solicit donations like not having like a big fundraising drive every fall or whatever no they won't do like a gala right they won't um they won't let the newspaper like print an ad asking people to donate what they will allow the newspapers to do is print like the margaret scott nursing mission had a like board meeting and i'm assuming some like fluff pieces about like they'll let like a reporter come along sometimes right yeah kind of yeah so they'll they'll sort of allow some of that to happen but no they won't publicly solicit donations and this is like an ideological religious thing yeah on the part of margaret scott so um scott believed that a worthy object worthily and unselfishly carried out makes its own appeal and never fails to commend itself to the sympathy and support of right thinking people who will voluntarily rally around its maintenance. This has been the experience of the Margaret Scott mission in the past, and it will unfailingly be the experience of the future, provided we who conduct the mission keep up, keep it up to its standard of faithfulness, trust, and efficiency. That's such an interesting mode of getting support is just like, assume the good work will get the word out there. It's really interesting. I mean, this is how Margaret Scott lived her entire life. And it seems to have worked for her, but I feel like... This is the thing. I think she... if anyone else told me that was their, like, idea for life, I'd be like, that's never going to work. Like, how are you going to pay your rent? But, like... How often do we have things where we're like, did you maybe talk about this to anyone? They're like, no, we never talked about this new, like, program or initiative, and then no one came to it. And we're like, weird. Yeah, so Margaret Scott seems to have somehow made this work. And I do wonder if it was somehow due to the people like Louise Minty, who were just sort of like quietly, be- quietly behind Margaret Scott's back being like, like, could you give her a pony maybe? <laughs> like, Yeah, like there's this whole like back deal thing to be yeah. like, we gotta get her a horse, man. She's so tired. <laughs> um, And I think like also it's like, her involvement as this sort of like folk hero this like shining example yeah. of like charity well was she seems to... to have like known a number of like rich people in the city yeah. who liked her to help her which i think is like the key to getting any of this off the ground is that yes. you have to know the alloways first yeah and like she's not like schmoozing exactly like it's not like she's in like the society papers like going to parties yeah. but she's like she is talking to those people yeah. And telling them, like, oh, you know, I'm getting involved with this family. Maybe you could help sort of thing, right? Do you think there was one person who was just, like, dodging her calls about, like, needing favors? <laughs> Ashdown after he's done being married. <laughs> like, like, we're going to screen those ones out. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
But to move forward a bit here, um, Margaret Scott passes away, unfortunately, in 1931. Okay, so, so we're jumping way ahead. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're sort of doing the same thing. They just kind of like, keep trucking along. They just kind of keep trucking along yeah. for a couple of decades. Um, sort of, yeah, over that time, they increase the number of nurses they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, just sort of keep doing the same yep. thing they're doing. I mean, I looked through all the sort of annual reports and yep. it was like, yep, typhoid patients. Sticking around, yep. Newborns, yep. Um, yeah, so she does, unfortunately, pass away. And in the same year, uh, Nurse Beverage retires. Oh, wow. So, like, so, the two mainstays of the organization exactly. kind of leave. Yeah. Um, and so, obviously, 1931, this is also the onset of the Great Depression. Yes, which we will hear about in our, uh, in an upcoming episode. Yeah. Um, we'll eventually get there. We have a few more before we get there. It's a oh, busy we've... time in Winnipeg history. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, once we get to, like, the 1910 to 1920, it is, I feel like, like the sort of 1870 period, just kind of chaos for a yes. little bit, and then... Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's obviously already a difficult time to yeah. fundraise, um, but even more so if you aren't asking. Right, yes, that's a tough time to just be like, people will come to us. Yeah, because Margaret Scott, like, before she passes away, she's like, hey, keep doing it this way. <laughs> Um, and the mission decides they will continue to operate in that How manner. long do they stick around after Margaret Scott's death? Not very long. That's not a huge surprise. Like, they, so- like they sort of do, there, but there's this there's this real faith in the idea, right, that if they're just, like, doing the right thing, the money will just arrive. But it becomes pretty apparent, I think, after Margaret Scott's death. I think it only works if you have the folk hero figurehead of the organization yes. still around. Now it's just a bunch of nurses, and people are like, oh, yeah. Who are, like, who, are, who is the woman with the pony? Yeah. <laughs> um... And around 1940, there's an outside report written um, on the mission, which is not flattering, which Uh outlines some of the kind of ways that it's come over since Margaret Scott's death. So it says, the mission still retains its high ideals of service, but today it is unable to carry on a satisfactory community public health nursing service as an entirely independent organization. So it's basically saying it is not able to do what it's supposed to do anymore. It sort of gives this, like, little um, sort of nod to, like, its ideals, right? Um, Essentially, the financial position of the mission is such that they are only able to hire junior nurses. Oh, no. And they are over-relying on student nurses as cheap labor. Uh, Yeah. What else is new? Well, yeah, so it's this, oh, man, is that not the first pitfall of every uh, nonprofit? We'll hire a marketing student to do our social media, and then when they leave, we'll kind of do nothing. And, like, we have all these lofty ideals, but also we can't actually afford to pay our staff. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. So, like, they're having a hard time. So, um, yeah, so they're having, obviously, a hard time financially. They're over-relying on these junior nurses, these student nurses. And ultimately, the report recommends that the mission be merged with the newer Victorian order of nurses. Okay. Which is, or I don't know if it's overall newer, but newer to Winnipeg. Um, and it's a larger national organization. Okay. Um, so, in 1943, um, the Margaret Scott nursing mission is dissolved. Um, it, it had sort of, I feel like after Margaret Scott's death, just been sort of like limping along. Yeah. Um, and its assets are transferred to um, a... a uh, hospital ward and to a scholarship fund okay so one of the things i sort of struggled with in writing this episode is that i don't want to take away um from everything that margaret scott did 
just yeah. because it existed in this kind of like limited paradigm. No, it seems like she genuinely believed in what she yeah. was doing and was bringing like genuine help to a community yeah. that needed it. Yeah, this was a woman who spent the vast majority of her life thinking about how she could help people. To the point where people had to tell her to slow down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's visiting people, she's helping people give birth and all this stuff, nursing children mm-hmm. back to health, um, all the while subsisting on a very, very tiny amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, she took on risk, right? Like. Yeah. Like Esselt mentioned at one point, like people, a lot of people got sick doing this work. Of course, yeah. Margaret Scott got sick doing this work, yeah, and apparently had like a weak constitution. Generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is so. This is someone who walked the walk, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the issue comes in when you have people who aren't doing that so much. Like so many people in Winnipeg would yeah. have all of these lofty ideals, but then never do anything about it, or would then like be like meaner to the sort of immigrant classes of Winnipeg. Yeah. That were justified. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I guess, you know, we don't know what happened directly between Margaret Scott and the people who she was But she seemed so well-liked. Yeah, she seemed to be welcome in people's homes, which tells me that she wasn't being, like, outwardly insulting or anything, And people seem to assume every nurse with the mission was her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, like, would treat that person, like, with respect. They'd be like, oh, like, comb your hair. Don't you know Margaret Scott is here? Like... It's just like some other random nurse. You're like, okay, I guess I'm sure. Margaret Scott today. Why not? Um, and organizations like the um, nursing mission were also important in the overall history of public health. Right. Yes. So I had asked Esselt whether she would classify the mission as kind of like a band aid, like as kind of like a stopgap yeah. between like nothing and something. Um, but they were, I I would think maybe template is a better way of thinking of it. Oh, as they were. They were sort of early volunteer templates for things like the Bureau of Child Hygiene, which was created just before World War I by the city government, um, which had been giving bits of money to Margaret Scott for years before that. And then it kind of created its own bureau to accomplish some of the same results. So very influential in early public health policy. So a lot of the things that were being done by Margaret Scott and her band of volunteers were later taken up by government. Interesting. Yeah. And by these kind of like larger institutions, right? Um, Though one impact of that is that women are increasingly edged out of the public health profession, right? At least in a way where they're making like meaningful institutional decisions. And they're more relegated to like nurses right that then are expected to leave once they are married yeah like this kind of supporting role instead of like margaret scott was really like she was setting the guiding principles of this organization as were the women on the board of this organization and like in the case of like minty responsible for getting like the funding the organization needed yeah absolutely i'm assuming how much of the board was women do you know um the founding board, I believe, was all women. Oh, interesting. The membership was not all women. Yeah. But moving forward, there were certainly men involved. Yeah. But... It seems the kind of thing that would slowly, over yeah. the course of the years, be like, oh, now it's all men on the board. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, I think it was always uh, quite a lot of, of women on the board. Interesting. Yeah. yeah and, and an interesting generation of female leadership, because in the interwar years, all of the leadership on this kind of public health nursing approach shifts toward men who are trained in public health and women women led organizations like margaret scott was really started to fade away into the background or get uh, um, subsumed into um, state programs that were almost always led by men so there's an important gender component there too right and do you have thoughts on why that change happens it's sort of as public health grows, it mm. professionalizes. 
Right. And as it professionalizes, it becomes male dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and even today, to an extent, public health, um, like nursing, for instance, public health right. nursing has become, um, it used to be the thing that, you know, when you spoke about public health or preventive health, you were talking about nursing. Mm-hmm. And that's no longer the case. And nurses no longer have such a high profile or decision making role in the system. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, kind of complex and um, not as close to the ground. And in that nurses have lost their visibility to some extent. Um, and, you know, the city of Winnipeg had its own public health department for much of the 20th century, which it no longer has, right? Right. So it's, it, it's got an interesting history that way. Um, there still are public health nurses in Winnipeg, of course, in Point Douglas also, who mm. do amazing work. Right. Um, but that that female led tradition of those early voluntary organizations really evaporates, I would say, by the 40s at the latest. This is interesting. Uh, Jeremy and our Harlequin romance episode, which was a while ago now, we're talking about like the genre of Harlequin romance come like the 50s is nurse doctor romances. Because mm-hmm. being a nurse was a transitional step to becoming a housewife. Yeah. Which is such a big shift from it being like, this is someone's calling in the 1900s. Like you're taking on this risk. You're doing like this kind of out of like personal faith. And then the perception of like, at least popular writing in the 50s is like, this is now like a step on your life path and not like a thing you do. This is just like a temporary job for a young unmarried woman. Yeah. Yeah. No. And like, obviously the people who were involved in this felt much more seriously, I think, about what they were doing. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Beverage was with them for like- She was with them for ages. Yeah. Yeah. Her entire career, right? Do you know if any of the nurses were married? I actually, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't imagine how hard that would be to figure out. Oh, yeah. No, like, they usually refer to them as, like, nurse last name. So, yeah. So, I impossible. can't even. Yeah. Impossible to track down without, like, this being your whole time, your whole life for a I might. Bit. I'll, I'll see if I can look up, like, nurse beverage, because I feel yeah. like that would probably be my best bet at figuring that out. Yeah. I'm curious to see if it was, like, this thing where, like, the women that were with them for a while, like gave away the trappings of like conventional like 1900s life for a woman of like middle class i wonder i mean and you know margaret scott certainly did yeah i guess you know she had kind of already done it in some way she had her little like three-year marriage and she'd kind of done the like basic steps of having like an adult life yeah and then just got widowed pretty early and then found a different passion i guess yeah um anyway though to rewind a bit i want to talk about the kind of biggest but less visible change that we've seen over the course of this this episode which you brought up in the very beginning which is actually in the city's geography Ooh, okay so winnipeg has been divided for so long i think we almost take it for granted yeah i can start by setting up where we were with the last episode with cornish when winnipeg becomes a city yeah sure so when winnipeg becomes a city we have a very small population a very small boundary that is kind of like when you think of Broadway today, it's north of Broadway going kind of into Point Douglas. Yeah. The Red River is a natural boundary between St. Boniface, which is at that point a, a separate parish going on to become a city. Yeah. And like 1913. And then it goes a little bit further west, but not before like St. James. St. James is a separate parish at that point. So mm-hmm. it's like a really small boundary. It's a tiny, tiny community compared to what Winnipeg is today. Yeah. And like the area that we know as Point Douglas now was initially a, a somewhat wealthy area. That was a rich neighborhood. I mean, the Exchange yeah. District, too, was also a fairly wealthy neighborhood. Well, it makes sense because like the Exchange District is where we see a lot of warehouses get set up. So if yeah. you're like a wealthy industrialist, 
you want to live like within walking distance. Yeah. I mean, the roads are terrible. You don't want to yeah. be that far from your factory. But then you get enough money that you're like, I want an estate away from all of the like working class people yeah. I employ. And so like, but like that doesn't just happen for no reason, yeah. right? Like the introduction of the rail yard, of course, divides the city into north and south, but it's really the typhoid epidemic that um and the surrounding rhetoric as well mm-hmm. that changes like who lives in areas like downtown and in point douglas interesting okay so as typhoid begins to infect people in these areas people who can afford to basically flee south mm-hmm. right like you had you had mentioned last time that there's this kind of hudson's bay company reserve that's yeah. sort of south of upper fort gary so people who can afford to move there yeah um, that's where uh, Hugh McDonald lives. Delnavert is exactly. right there. Yeah, and so that's one of the first houses to have like electricity. Yes, some move across the river too to like uh, what's now Osborne Village. Yeah, so it's it's almost like this like decades earlier version of like white flight, where people yeah. are sort of fleeing from this area where they see it as sort of infected with disease mm-hmm. and also immigrants. Immigrants infected with immigrants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, big, big quotation marks around that, right? That's not what we were saying. No, but that's, I'm sure, part of the, I like, conceptualization between, behind moving, right? It's yes. like, I would like to be further away from this, yeah. all of it. Yeah, absolutely. From this, like, rotten part of town, as they yeah. would think, right? And, and like, they're moving also to, like, newer wards. Like you had said, you know, people are getting electricity installed in these areas. Also, there are sewer connections in those areas. Yeah. And, like, in some ways, I don't want to be that judgmental of people who do who did that. Yeah. Because, like, I also want to live in a house with a sewer connection. Yeah, right. But um, we do still see the impacts of that flight today, right? Yeah. In terms of how our city is um, divided. Central and North Winnipeg become areas where, like, wealthy Winnipeggers don't go, where they become fearful of. Or they send people in as an act of charity as opposed to, like, an active interest in the community, right? Yeah. And, like, still today, I know people who won't go downtown. I grew up in rural Manitoba, Mm -hmm. as I'm sure people who've listened to the show for a while know or who know me. Yeah. Uh, And... I used to work in Osborne Village, and I used to live in Osborne Village, and I had family members who would be like, aren't you, like, scared walking home at night? And I would be like, not really. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, people that won't go past, like, St. Vitale. Like, mm-hmm. there's kind of this idea of, like, the further north you go into the city, the, like, worse it gets, which is not necessarily true. Because even, like, yeah. the north-south divide at the time is not exactly right. There's definitely working-class yeah. neighborhoods further south, totally. too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of the way we conceptualize the city. Yeah, and we've conceptualized it that way basically since this typhoid outbreak yeah. in 1904. Um, it's wild the impact that had on just, like, the city's geography and how we, like, view our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, somehow I keep ending the episodes on, like, huge bummers of information about the <laughs> formation of this city. I think that's, uh, I think that's history. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's an important part in the formation of our city and um, of how our public health works. Yeah. And yeah, just a really interesting example of a person also who like had an ideal and really lived up to it. Yeah. Not many people do that. That's really impressive that she stuck that out for her whole life. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, and I mean, you can see too, like this divide of Winnipeg comes up a lot when we talk about. Uh, going into, say, World War One, which is yeah. going to be our next episode, and then the strike coming after that. Like, these wealth gaps kind of get wider and wider despite interventions like the Margaret Scott nursing mission. They can yes. only do so much. Yeah, and I mean, in some, like, in some sense, you know, like, her nursing mission isn't even trying to broach those. No, no, it's there to help in people. Some ways, in some ways, it's even enforcing those, right? Mm-hmm. By, like, 
portraying these areas of Winnipeg in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Right? It's it's still, um, yeah, it's not changing the rhetoric, right? Yeah. Which is not to say it's not changing people's lives for the better. Yeah. Certainly, like, they saved thousands of people's but lives. But from, like, the, like, higher up administrative sense, it's not, like, it's playing with the system, not exactly. playing against it. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? For, like, one woman wandering that's around. That's incredible. That's incredible. That is so much work. <laughs> yeah. And she did it every day for her entire life. And that's pretty amazing. How young was she when she started? So she was... She would have 30s? been in her 30s. Yeah, because she was 25 when she moved to the prairies. And she lived until she was, like, 60s? She... Okay, so she would have been... Yeah, so she was 25 when she got here in 1886. Um, started doing stuff when she was, like, 35, and then, yeah, another 25 years of yeah. that. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. To, I mean, like, live with nothing in your mission. Yeah. With all of your coworkers. Yeah. <laughs> and then be, like, enforced a bedtime and a wake-up time because yeah. you work too hard. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to do a little teaser for the next episode? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, the next episode's going to be a fun one. I was, yeah. I feel like we've gotten, it's gotten a little funnier now that we get into, like, Winnipeg sort of, like, weird kind of, like, growing pains phase where, yeah. like, everything is going wrong and no one quite knows what they're doing. Yeah. But uh, our next episode is on kind of a fun topic. I'm going to be talking it's, about Harry Colborn. Yeah. It's our it's our only non-human subject. Well, I'm talking partially <laughs> okay, about a person. you're talking about a person. The thing is, we're talking about Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Which will be very, very fun. The issue is that the actual bear is literally just a bear. So there is a <laughs> limit on the amount of, like, activity Winnie could get up to. Yeah. That can sustain, like, a conversation about Winnipeg. Because also, Winnie's not from here. Yeah. So um, I almost feel like this episode's going to be, like, a little, like, mid-program break. Yeah. So we're going to talk about what Canadians were doing mm -hmm. away from... Or what Man Manitobans and Winnipegers were doing away from Manitoba during the war. And then we'll pivot pretty hard back to Winnipeg in the episode after that. But yep. we'll also hear about what uh, our old cartoon bear, Winnie, got up to. Yes. I'm very excited to talk about Some uh, international trips yes. also. I'm excited to talk about Vini Pooh. It'll be a good one. And we're so excited to have you along on the ride. Yeah. Um, okay. Should I try and do all the socials? Do you want me to do all the socials? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> okay. So... If you want to see our sources or uh, any of the pictures that I'm sure you have lots of, because there's lots of photos of this time in Winnipeg history. Unfortunately, I don't have any of the really gross photos, but... Oh, uh, I think that's fine. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> clamoring to see that. I will include a picture of a box closet for everyone to see. Perfect. Uh, you can check that out at onegreathistory.wordpress.com. Uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash onegreathistory for bonus episodes we talk about... Um, the book about Margaret Scott and all of her fun things that we had to leave out. And then uh, mm -hmm. bonus episodes and all kinds of other Winnipeg history stuff that we couldn't make into proper episodes. Uh, we'd like to thank the Manitoba Historical Society for their support, as well as the Winnipeg Foundation in their uh, Centennial Institute grant. Uh, the Winnipeg Free Press in the province of Manitoba for helping to fund this project. We we could have done it without it, but like it really helps. This would it, have been so hard to do otherwise. Yes, makes it a lot nicer. <laughs> yes. So uh, thank you so much to all of them. Uh, you can follow us on social media at Facebook and Instagram at One Great History. And we're on Twitter at number one great history. We're sharing uh, fun facts and pictures along the way as we go and other sort of miscellaneous updates as we find them. Uh, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.